This is episode 218 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show this week is made available completely free and without any commercials, all thanks to support from listeners just like you who signed up to be our patron. You can support us on Patreon and unlock bonus benefits by signing up at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hey. It's me, Cassidy. I know Gary's already done the editing on the show for today, but I just had to jump in here to interrupt the program because I have a special announcement. Starting July 6th, I'm going to be starting my Zero to Podcasting Mastermind Group. It's a one-year training-intensive program where I will work with historians and humanities professionals that want to start their own successful podcast. I'll be walking them through step-by-step how to go from absolutely nothing but a desire to podcast all the way to successful business podcast platform that lets your passion for history work for you. I know this training program works because it's the exact step-by-step method I use to launch that Shakespeare life. And it's the same method that's already worked for other students of mine who started out as listeners just like you. If you're sitting there wishing you had a successful podcast of your own, then come join us this year and let me show you how to make that dream a reality. Now, I'm only taking a handful of people because to work with you in this highly one-on-one personalized way, we're keeping the group super, super small in focus so that I can focus on making sure you get the results that you want. If you want to be in on my exclusive mastermind group and finally start that podcast you've been thinking about, then apply right now at CassidyCash.com slash mastermind. Mastermind is all one word. So that's CassidyCash.com slash mastermind. The deadline to get that application in is coming up fast. It's June 30th and we won't be accepting applications after that date. So go ahead and apply right now. I hope I will see you inside. Okay, Gary, take them back to the show. Catherine was very eager uh, to meet with Elizabeth. Elizabeth was like, absolutely not interested (laughs) in meeting with Catherine Medici. Because Elizabeth doesn't really like, she likes traveling in her realm, but she doesn't travel outside of her realm. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Married to Henry Valois, Catherine de' Medici held considerable power and influence over the Valois dynasty of France and was a beloved daughter from the Medici dynasty in Italy. The year William Shakespeare was born in 1564, Catherine de' Medici offered her son Charles IX as a husband for Elizabeth I and would go on to offer her two other sons, Francis and Henry, to Elizabeth as husbands as well in a decades-long effort to secure a political alliance through marriage with England. Staunchly opposed to marriage on the whole, Elizabeth I never did accept Catherine's sons as husbands, but the interactions and rivalry between these two powerful women was a mainstay over England for the formative years in Shakespeare's lifetime. Here today to help us explore the life of Catherine de' Medici is our guest, historian, and author of the latest book about Catherine de' Medici called Blood, Fire, and Gold, The Story of Elizabeth I of England and Catherine de' Medici, Dr. Estelle Paronque. 
Dr. Estelle Paronc is an assistant professor in history at NCH at Northeastern London campus. She has participated in several international historical documentaries on TV, including BBC Two's The Boleyns, A Scandalous Family that aired in August of 2021, where she shared her knowledge of Anglo-French relations under Henry VIII's reign. She has also participated in Secret d'Histoire on France 2 and France 3, as well as the history podcasts History Hit, Not Just the Tudors, and Talking Tudors. She has extensively published on the Tudors and the Valois and is the author of Elizabeth I of England Through Valois Eyes and of the forthcoming book Blood, Fire, and Gold, The Story of Elizabeth I of England and Catherine de' Medici. This book is coming out in June of 2022. You can find links to Dr. Parent's work as well as her books in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Estelle. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Catherine de' Medici's family was a noble family in Italy. So how did she come to have a ruling place in France? Well, that's a very good question. Well, Catherine de' Medici is a very complex character. She is from a noble family from Italy, from Florence de' Medici. She's the daughter of Lorenzo de' Medici and of Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne was also a very powerful noble family, but in France. And so it does make sense then what's going to happen. The alliance between Francis I and the Pope is going to happen because of that background from Catherine. So that's also, you know, I think look, people only see her as a Medici, only see her as an Italian princess, you know, not princess, but, you know, as an Italian woman, when actually she's half Italian, half French. So I think the xenophobia around her is quite interesting. I think that, you know, sometimes, you know, when you have your dual citizen, it's kind of funny, like the way people react to you, depending where you're coming from. So what happened to her was basically she she was from one of the most powerful Italian family, but her story and her fate is quite extraordinary in the sense that she was an orphan very quickly. She lost her mother 10 days after being born. She lost her father three weeks after. And then she was, she was sent to relatives, her grandmother, her aunts, and then uncles. And her uncles were going to become popes, and which is absolutely what is going to basically change everything for her. She becomes really rapidly a pawn. Women are always used as pawns. In the uh, when I say that, I don't say that in a necessarily in a bad way. What I'm trying to explain is that usually women are used to make alliances, to make dynastic alliances, to make you know um, aristocratic alliances, and so it's exactly what's going to happen for this little girl. And uh, she's an orphan, and yet it's what's going to happen for her. And Catherine de' Medici is going to receive like lots of proposals. The Pope is going to make the deal with Francis I of France, and she's going to marry the second son of Francis, so not the firstborn, which is quite important as well, because it means that she was never meant to be queen. And so that's absolutely uh, remarkable. And she arrived in Marseille in October 1533. She's going to be married to Henry of France, who was going to become Henry II, but at that time, no one would have expected it. And she's going to fall in love with that boy. He's not going to fall in love with her. That's a tragedy of a life. That's a, probably uh, something that we could discuss later or another podcast, I don't know. <laughs> but he's not going to fall in love with her. But somehow this couple is going to become Dauphin and Dauphin of France. Um, Henry's uh, older brother is going to die. And 
then she becomes, you know, the heir to the throne with her husband, obviously. So she became queen consort of France in 1547, when Francis I is going to die. And what's amazing is that at that time, as a queen consort, you don't have much power. She didn't, definitely didn't have much power. Her influence over her husband is going to grow, especially towards the end of his reign, around 1557, even 1556. I think he's going to realise that she's actually more clever than he thought she was. And, you know, some, some people take some time to really understand others and to see what they have in front of them. And Catherine is that. Catherine is not the Renaissance beauty, she's not what you expect from a princess, the ideal princess. She's obviously not a princess, she's not royal blood, but still, you know, there's this princess-like that she she has to convey. And she's absolutely doesn't have any attributes that you would see, that you that people would seek, you know, like sometimes, you know, blonde, blue eyes were something that, you know, were really praised during the Renaissance. She was not, she was called fat, she was not fat. She but there was this idea that she, she basically she was far from being perfect. However, soon people were also commenting, especially when during her husband's reign and during Francis the first reign, they love her humility, the love that she's so docile, the love that she's so, you know, she, she's really the perfect, devoted wife. She, she accepts like uh, her husband's mistress. So we really have a woman who knows from a very young age how to play the games of the court. And what's interesting is that because she lost everyone very young, she didn't receive that type of education. Of, uh, very soon she, had, she understood danger. And by understanding danger, she understood the rules of the game of the court because it's all about danger. It's all about survival. And Catherine de' Medici really, really understood that from a very, very young age. So we know that Elizabeth I and Catherine de Medici had a significant amount of correspondence between each other, but did they ever actually meet in person? Actually, they never did. But it's, as you said, like they had, a, a, they exchanged a lot of letters to one another. And what's very interesting is that Catherine was very eager to meet with Elizabeth. Elizabeth was like, absolutely not interested <laughs> in meeting with Catherine Medici because Elizabeth doesn't really like, she likes traveling in her realm, but she doesn't travel outside of her realm. We have a different type of personality with Catherine, who obviously came from Italy to go to France. She went to the border, border of Spain to see her daughter, Elizabeth of Valois. So obviously we have like a very different approach to um, maybe uh, early modern travel or um, the possibility to meet other people. And Catherine was asking, especially when there were like marriage negotiations, which we're going to discuss in more depth. But Catherine was then, oh, uh, we could meet in Dover. I could come to Dover. It's only like three hours or, you know, or like whatever, like she thought it was going to be. And she thought we're very like our realms or only separated from, you know, just a bit of water. It's nothing. We can We can still meet and we can still discuss things in person. And what I found really funny about these myths you know, around queens or kings that meet or don't meet, is the that I do believe that history would have been different if those political characters actually met. It would have been quite interesting to see what type of relationship they would have built after a meeting. Because, for example, if we take like Henry VIII, 
and Francis I, so Henry VIII of England and Francis I of France, they did uh, meet twice. And that's quite remarkable and incredible for the period. And we know that it did influence their relationship there. We call it a bromance almost, and some, you know, that it's a rivalry, like they fall out, it's a, uh, it's a brotherly love. And I think it's really because of, of what happened, because they had the opportunity to look into each other's eyes. Comparatively, the religious climate in France was much more fraught than it was in England. The English saw a strict imposition of Protestantism and strong laws against Catholics. While in France, the French Huguenots who followed the teachings of John Calvin were persecuted and slaughtered by the French Catholic government. Estelle, how were Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici able to have this rapport with one another when they both so strongly opposed the religion of the other person? Well, that's very interesting, Cassidy. But, but first of all, I think that what you have to remember is that there's a difference between personal views and policies, political policies that you're going to make in your country to be able to rule. That's one thing. So, for example, for Elizabeth, first of all, the persecution of Catholics doesn't really happen before uh, 1570, after she was excommunicated. So that's an important, an important point to say. She did, uh, I think it's very hard for scholars, even today, historians, there are debates around Elizabeth I's faith. And I can understand it because when you look at her personal prayers and you look at her personal letters, it's very hard. To, of course, you would see the influence of reformed ideas. It would not be as clear as you think it, it could be. It's not probably not as clear as Edward VI ideas because we have his diary so we do know that he was extremely protestant we don't have that with elizabeth she's really she is in the middle she believes in god she believes in jesus christ and the rest for her didn't really matter but what mattered to her was a complete allegiance to her so the problem was obviously the catholics didn't recognize the marriage of Anne Boleyn and Henry and contested her legitimacy to be on the throne that's where she had a problem and that's where policies had to be changed in 1570 and after that and where they are there were persecutions of catholics and, and everything for catherine and medici same people have this image of a very stern anti-protestant queen that is not the truth of course she was. I'm not saying she was not ultra-Catholic herself. She was extremely Catholic. She comes from Italy. Her background, her education, like 100% Catholic. But Catherine was also a woman who was practical. And for her, the most important thing was to rule with her sons or for her sons to rule, depending on which year we're looking at. So for her, it was the stability of the realm, the most important thing. That's why there's absolutely a myth that she has anything to do with the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in 1572. We have no proof whatsoever. It comes from the black legend of Catherine de Medici and that has been created mostly by people who are xenophobic and who are probably misogynistic as well. So it's all of that that is around her. So then it's not, I think Catherine and, and Elizabeth, the problem of religion, the problem that one was Protestant and one was Catholic, was not that important. That's not, that's actually not what really caused their differences at the end of Catherine's life. 
the overseas they're going to use those differences to create even more you know rivalry between the two but that is actually they're just protects it's not what's really at the heart of the problem of their rivalry for example it's it it grew for all the reasons and i actually think that both of them i mean catherine was happy more than happy for any other sons to marry elizabeth and um for elizabeth to remain protestant for the country to remain protestant and for this for her sons to remain catholic so they were both trying to be i think to appease the other side very much so and to but then the policies that happen in their countries is very different it has nothing to do with their personal belief i think and it has to do with how do i rule a country and for catherine the medici the wars of religion just got out of control it's not when you really look at her and her power of decision is she really enjoying having like so many protestants in our country no does she wish that they were all converting to Catholicism? Yes. But she was also happy to make compromises when she realised that that was not going to happen. So a very complex matter, very complex personalities and very complex faith. In the book, The Contending Kingdoms, author Susan Doran writes that, quote, the English state papers make clear that Queen Elizabeth and her ambassadors took Catherine de' Medici very seriously as a major political player, end quote. Estelle, why is it surprising that Catherine was taken seriously by the English and particularly Elizabeth I? Is it because England and France were tense politically? I mean, they're relatively recently coming off the Hundred Years' War. So I think it's quite surprising to see these two trying to work together. Well, it is and it is not. And it's not just about the um, Hundred Years' War. It's about the Italian wars that ravaged Europe in the first part of the 16th century. That's where it's going to create problems between Elizabeth and Catherine. But the fact that the English ambassadors or Elizabeth I all going to take seriously Catherine and Medici is absolutely not surprising given that Catherine positioned herself as Queen Mother of France, Mother of Kings. So I think it's quite important here to realise that there is almost like a weird relationship going on between the English ambassadors and Catherine de' Medici because they know that she's not the Queen Regnant but they also know that she's very much influential. So let's not forget from 1560 to 1563, she's actually acting as regent. Then from 1563 until the end of her life, uh, well, I would say that from 1563 up to probably 1568, 69, Charles IX really let his mother in power and make all the decisions for him, or more or less like they, they might have you know, discussions, but she's really the one who has a, the upper hand in their relationship. Then when he grows up, obviously, you can imagine when you start being 20, you're like, mom, you're embarrassing me. Could you please stop? And so we have this kind of uh, dynamic and he becomes more more interested in power himself, but his mother is still in Privy Council. He's still a, a very important councillor. You know, there's no audience without, without her and uh, no official audience without her he might have sometimes uh, audiences without her but uh, with her blessing <laughs> you can do this my son you, you're allowed to to rule <laughs> without me with henry the third we have a total different dynamic he's an adult when he, when he became king of france it's 1574 but he massively respects his mother 
in massively respects her ideas and her opinions. And though they do have a little fallout at some point because she, she wished she did things differently, they still worked together. Right? He was still listening to her, but he, she was one of political advisors. But because she built so much power, so much influence, you know, for the first for, for 14 years, from 1560 to 1574, it meant that people had massive respect for her, knew that if they wanted to talk to Henry III about something, it might be sometimes better to approach it, approach it with Catherine first. And so she just became like a, a very significant political player. And it's what she she had always wanted to be fair because the the play the, the game where she was like a devoted humble um quiet wife it was just a game it was just a ploy Catherine de Medici was a very smart sharp you know astute woman who knew and who understood how sometimes to manipulate and to lie to get what she wanted like Elizabeth yeah so they probably they had at least that in common in 1564, Catherine de' Medici offered her son Charles IX as husband for Queen Elizabeth I. Estelle, why did Catherine extend this offer and what motivated Elizabeth to refuse? Well, so if, if the marriage negotiations are, you're right, are going to start in 1564 with Charles IX. And the reason for it is that Catherine really, really wants, she wants an alliance with England. She thinks it's absolutely ridiculous to have a single woman on the throne. She doesn't even understand Elizabeth's decision to remain single. She thinks she truly believed that power for women only came through having sons. And you have this idea that she would push on Elizabeth repeatedly in letters. Obviously something that really annoyed Elizabeth because she saw the opposite. She thought that power should come from yourself but Elizabeth was weird in this way because she thought that only her could do it because she was not like any other woman she was an extraordinary woman and so she understood that why people would see her as different and actually I think she enjoyed that she enjoyed like being the one who didn't want to conform to what was expected from women but for Catherine she's going to pursue Elizabeth on behalf of all her sons. So we have 1564 with Charles IX. It's going to be shut down by um, Elizabeth saying he's too young for her. Then she, she's right, she's 13 or something. And she's like, uh, well, I mean, he was like she's, 13? She's, yeah, he's like, he's 13, 14. Really young. And, she, and she's like 30, 30 something. So so it is it's 32, 33. So it's quite ridiculous. She, she really thinks it's ridiculous. But then uh, uh, Catherine is not a woman you can say no to. So then she tries again when he's older. So she thought like what she meant was like he was too young. She didn't understand that what she meant was really the gap between them that she didn't like. Not too young at the moment, too young yeah, for Elizabeth. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean I've, Elizabeth made it herself clear, but I think Catherine chose not to understand that part. And in 1568, 1569, she pushes again. And Elizabeth like again is saying no. But then she... Uh, Authors in 1570, Henry, so who was going to become Henry III, but at the time he was just, you know, the Dauphin of France. And when she saw a portrait, she was like, oh, actually, this one is quite yummy. So maybe I could make, you know, um, an exception. But Henry is the one who's definitely not going to want to marry a Protestant queen. So 
we have a big difference between at the moment. So it's the the, the negotiations are almost lost really quickly between 1570 and 1571. And then there's the third son, Francis, Duke of Alonso, and then Duke of Anjou in 1576, who uh, is the one that is, is really going to consider. And what I mean by that is that Personally, I think Elizabeth always knew she wanted to remain single because for her, it, she didn't want to share power and she didn't want to put herself at risk. But I think with Francis, she probably enjoyed his company. And also I think that when she got older and, realized, you know, it's almost like when you've said no, no, no all your life. Actually, it's one of the poems when I was very young. And the poem is like when I was very young and I attracted like I'm. Um, paraphrasing obviously it's not what she's saying but like exactly what for word but like she's saying when I was very young I was you know everyone was drawn to me and I had many proposals and then um, when I'm no longer very young everyone forgets about me kind of thing so it's kind of like the poem and I think for Elizabeth towards the end of like when she when it's her last shot when it's like the last moment of her her being pursued you have to imagine that this woman had been pursued all her life by different suitors then she and there's still this Francis, you know, in 1580, 1581. So like, oh, but I like you and I enjoy your company. And I think she almost believed him. And I think he was actually honest that he liked her company. I think they had lots of fun together. We have that. I, I can imagine. I think I think they probably had a similar sense of humor. They, we do see them all the time together during because he he went to see her in person. You know, the only suitor uh, foreigner who went to see her. Oh, he's not the only one, but he's the one who who made it twice and who uh, spent lots of time with her. And I think that at some point she could have been, maybe she was drunk or something. She made a promise. Maybe she had too much wine or beer. I don't know. And she made a promise that she would actually marry him. And then the next day she said, oh, obviously it was a mistake and uh, she didn't mean it. But he's extremely hurt. And he threatened her. It's all in my book. But he threatened her to reveal all her letters, all her personal letters to him showing that she had great affection to him. And then she's like absolutely outraged about this and can't believe that he would do something like this. And and so you have a bit of a fallout and then he, he leaves and obviously there's no marriage. But, but, the, the, but for Catherine, there's still hope that because they were so close to it in 1581 that there might be still be here, but obviously that, that's not going to happen. Elizabeth is the virgin queen in the end. So, you know, she didn't marry, didn't have children. After the invasion of the Spanish Armada, England returned their support for the Huguenots and Henry Navarre is fighting for the throne in France. Estelle, how did the rise of Henry Navarre impact the legacy of Catherine de' Medici? Well, I think, so as Catherine de' Medici dies before the fall of her own son and with her the last Valois, um, male Valois, I think it's quite good that she didn't see <laughs> the assassination of her son. And I think that in terms of legacy, Henry of Navarre, to thrive with a new dynasty, the Bourbon, or the Bourbons, like saying in English, but Bourbon in French. When you have a new dynasty, you have to kind of demonize the one before you. You either do that or you try to build upon the, the, the old dynasty, like, for example, you know, the Stuart with the Tudors and then um, the Anover with the Stuarts. But here, we have more of a conflict because we have different religions as well. Until obviously Henry of Navarre is going to convert to Catholicism, but he does that as a political move, not as a religious faith. His religious faith, I don't think it ever changed. 
Uh, he was brought up as a Protestant, and I think he died in his heart <laughs> as a Protestant, if we, if we can say. But I think then the legacy of Catherine de' Medici, I think Catherine had to be demonized for Henry of Bourbon, Henry of Navarre, and um, Henry the Fourth of France, yes, same man here, for him to be seen as the one who's going to reunite the Protestants and the Catholics. So the Valois, basically Catherine and her sons, are com- going to be vilified, vilified in pamphlets, vilified um, in books, vilified. They were the bad ones. They were the ones who let uh, France bled, uh, bleed, and they were the ones who uh, let the religious civil wars, you know, uh, ravage France. And he's the one who's going to try to find a compromise. He's the one, he's the hero that France was waiting for. So if you have a hero, you need villains. And it was really easy for easy for him because the villains were dead. So they could not defend themselves. And that's where we have this black legend of Catherine de Medici, which my book is really trying to, not just my book, let, let me be honest here, there are other scholars who have worked on that before and try to, you know, reassess Catherine's reputation. But my book is also doing that through um, another lens, the relation, the complex relationship with Elizabeth I, who was glorified herself. So, so yes, I think that's the legacy. Now, I know we would love to explore the history of Catherine de Medici further, and obviously we will link to your book as the best place to start when exploring Catherine de Medici. But what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend in addition to your book? If we are brand new to the study of this part of history, where should we begin? So if you're interested in Catherine de Medici, and if you wanted like to have more on her and not just a relationship with Elizabeth I, I cannot recommend enough Leonie Frida, uh, Catherine de Medici simple as that it's a great book it is packed with interesting research and it just does justice to to Catherine now if you're interested in Elizabeth I I would recommend the latest book by Carol Levin The Reign of Elizabeth I think it's just out or it's going to be out very soon so just check you know on (laughs) on Amazon or wherever you like to buy your books from and if you're interested in uh, the dynasty, the Valois, which is a long dynasty, it's a big dynasty, and but the ones that were ruling under Elizabeth, like at the same time as Elizabeth I, then I would recommend my other book, actually, Elizabeth, I hope it's okay, yes, <laughs> Elizabeth, the first, <laughs> Elizabeth I through Valois Eyes. And it's my first, it's an academic book, so it might be sometimes harder to enter into it. It gives you an understanding of the relationship between Elizabeth and not just Catherine, but her sons. Um, so it's it, the focus is more is more on the sons of Catherine and Elizabeth. But that, I would say all three to uh, first Leonie Frieda, definitely if you want to know more about Catherine and you don't really know enough. Then Carol Levin, this new book on the brain of life and reign of Elizabeth is really like you have everything you need to know about it. Like it's almost like the you know. Yeah, is is I would say it's almost the perfect biography. You know, I don't I don't want to be too, too much because you know some people can always write biographies, but it's it's an amazing one. So yeah, those are excellent resources for sure. We will link to these in the show notes, so make sure you hang on for the link for where to find those. Now, Estelle, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Okay, so you're going to think it's really weird, so it's not a history book, but I would go with what I know for sure by Oprah Winfrey. 
It's my favorite book. It's my own Bible. It's the one that grounds me. It's the one that resonates in me. That the one. It's the one that makes me reflect on myself. Helps me grow. Helps me. Helps me understand where my failures are, my fears, also my hopes, and it it just gives me this boost of positivity and faith. But for me, it's not faith, religious faith. It's more of faith in myself, faith in my fate. Yeah, what I know for sure by Oprah Winfrey. Well, I think a book that brings you positivity and faith is a great selection for your desert island, for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm working on so many projects. So obviously I'm an academic, so I'm working on academic projects, doing another trade book as well. So like, all I can tell you is I'm still working on queens, but also on powerful women. I have this obsession, I think, with women in power. The fact that um, I'm interested, I'm fascinated in the ways in which, you know, women would, you know, maneuver in uh, patriarchal societies. So yeah, that, that I, I hope I'll never stop working on that because I absolutely love love reading about this and doing research and writing about these women. So, Well, as delightful and fascinating as your book on Catherine de' Medici is, I know we're looking forward to following your work and seeing what's next. Dr. Estelle Parent, thank you so much for being here and walking us through the history of Catherine de' Medici and her relationship to Elizabeth I during the life of William Shakespeare. This was a fun conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Cassidy. Be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform to let other listeners know where they can learn something new about Shakespeare. Find more information on our guests today in the show notes for today's episode. There you'll find links to Dr. Estelle Parent's latest book, Blood, Fire, and Gold, all about the relationship between Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici. The book is set to publish in June of this year, and pre-orders are available now. Find links to these and a few extra history tidbits about our topic today at CassidyCash.com slash episode 218. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP218. There are visual companions to our show this week, things like woodcuts, portraits, museum artifacts, diagrams, and more available inside the detailed show notes available to our patrons. Access these on the regular show notes page using the orange Patreon button. When you click it and log in using your Patreon credentials, it will immediately expand all of the extras. You can join as a patron using that button as well and get access to coordinating visual content for all of our shows, as well as behind the scenes history research that goes into the making of our episodes. Explore all the benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.